Welcome to the Intelligence Download, a podcast from BA Systems. I'm Ben Tudor. In our previous podcast, we talked about the basics of social engineering, why it's so valuable to attackers and why it's so hard for institutions and individuals to defend against it. This time, we're going to look at how some of the institutions and organisations can help individuals protect themselves with data privacy. Um, Esme Hayward, who took part in the previous podcast, is a cybersecurity and human factors consultant at BA Systems. After studying applied psychology at university, she came to work at Applied Intelligence and has carried out work for UK government departments, the European Commission, and clients in the financial sector to help address the human element of cybersecurity. Rob Clifford is a qualified data protection and information rights professional with 15 years sector experience in delivery of data policy and strategy. He's a former civil servant for the UK government and helped shape the Home Office data strategy. As a member of the UK government's Data Leaders Forum, Robert has recently worked to support government in developing data ethics codes of practice and ensure continued support for innovation in the security sector. If we can start off, uh, Rob, could you define data privacy? And Esme, uh, after that, would you be able to explain what effect a strong data privacy regime can have on tackling social engineering? I'll certainly give it a try. I think the first thing to understand around data privacy is it depends on where you actually utter those words because it has a different meaning in different parts of the world. When we usually talk about data privacy, I suppose there are two broad components to it. The first one most people are familiar with since the 25th of May last year and the innumerable emails hitting their inboxes begging for for permission to process the data is the sort of legal uh, idea of privacy, which in European law comes from GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which itself has its roots back in European law and the European Convention of Human Rights, Article 8, you know, for those people who care about these things. There, so in that respect, data privacy is the sort of rules that govern the processing and collecting or collecting and processing of personal data and its use thereafter. So that's that's one way of thinking about privacy. The other way, and I'd suggest is going to be increasingly important and relevant to our conversation today, is how the individual thinks about privacy and what it means to them. So putting the legalese to one side for a moment, if we can, privacy to most people is around protecting what's important to them as a person. Uh, and in terms of data privacy, it's about the information about themselves, the things they do, the people they care about. Now, as I alluded to, different parts of the world have different views on these subjects. So as a, a European citizen currently, I think we'll, we'll stick with that definition for the conversation today. But two, two broad components, the legal, but also that personal sense of what's right in terms of using your personal data. So Esme, that sounds like a, a good definition there. Um, how would you put it into practice? How would, how would you explain how a strong data privacy policy and a strong individual data privacy policy would affect uh, a, a, an individual? Yeah, so I think there has to be a joint responsibility, really, both on the individual side and the organisational side. So I think from an organisational perspective, um, having privacy and secure by design is really good practice. So whereby individuals' accounts are more private by default would be far better. Um, and then equally from the individual perspective, um, people need to be really cautious about what information they are giving to organisations and posting online. Um, it's given social media is so accessible to a number of different people with you know, varying degrees of privacy. Um, people really need to think hard about, you know, could this information be used against me? I suppose it's, you know, the last 15 years or so we've been actively incentivised by 
organizations or businesses to put as much information about ourselves online as possible and that's that's not necessarily come back to bite us yet but it's it's certainly created a few problems absolutely and you take the really simple examples of you know young people today applying for jobs and you know they're sort of having to go back and look at you know the wild parties that they perhaps went to as a teenager and things like that and what information is out there um i think very suddenly we've we've you know, become more and more aware of um, how easy it is to post something online and say something that's perhaps not acceptable, um, which can actually um, come back and sort of bite them a bit later on. Um, so we've talked about, you know, some of the sort of issues around this, but what role does data privacy have in social engineering attacks? Um, we've touched on it slightly about putting more information out there. Um, you know, how does this then link into cyber fraud? So data privacy, so, you know, when we're looking at um, a huge plethora of information being available online or to organisations, if um, an advisory were able to get hold of that information, then that can be used against them potentially. So, um, for example, LinkedIn, um, you know, you can clearly identify a number of key roles from uh, big organisations and therefore that gives the ability of um, a mil potentially malicious person to easily identify um, key personnel and um, commit a whaling type attack um, where you've got high value individuals. Um, equally, you could, um, because of the plethora of information out there and access accessibility and reach to individuals, you could have a non-targeted attack whereby you can push out um, a potentially malicious payload to a number of different individuals. Yeah, so, so in terms of social media and that sort of intersection with data privacy, I think there, there's two elements here really, isn't there? The one that the, the media and certainly some of the regulators have focused on is the social media platform's ability to keep their data safe or to resist the temptation to share it with third parties where there's a potentially borderline legal position to do so, but it, it's not really clear. Now, we, we focus on that. I think when we're talking about cybersecurity uh, more generally in social engineering, there's also a responsibility, which is a hard word to say, but on the individual to be cautious about the way in which they use the data. So, so the point Esme made already about that sort of spectator sport we all engage in of seeing the latest embarrassment in the press where someone said something quite untoward when they were 16. Uh, yes, you know, that, that, that's, that's in a way, you know, it's a bit of schadenfreude, guilty pleasure in looking at that. But the reality is people share data like, you know, water. It's, it's there. We create an exhaust of personal information, exhaust fumes that follow us around everywhere we go. So, yes, I think you, you, you can focus on the responsibilities of these social media giants to, to do something with their platforms or certainly to educate their user base. But the user themselves has to demonstrate a bit of restraint on the way in which they share their data. I think, you know, one way to think about it, and it's not a, it's not a novel idea, is to, if you consider your own personal data as your own money, actually treat your personal data like money, you'll be far more astute in how you use that and measure it out in all your interactions. You'll hold people to task much better and you'll take more of a general interest in where in which platforms are processing your data slash money. So individuals shouldn't really abdicate responsibility for this. They should think about the value of their data and, as you say, how they spend it, but also the, the possible impact of sharing this data very freely that you know, may make them more susceptible or uh, more likely to become a target of, of an attack. 
So we're probably all familiar with the responsibilities on the data processor or controller to, to only request the data they actually need to deliver that service or provide a function for the data subject. But also there should be a line of thought on the data subjects part that says, what data should I be handing over? And they should probably critically engage with the fact that they don't need to hand over masses of data to provide a certain outcome. For instance, if I walked into a news agent and you know paid my pound for the copy of the Times or any other newspaper that may be available, and others are just as good, I'm sure. Uh, other newspapers are available, so and I'm sure they're excellent also. And the Times may not be a pound anymore, so apologies for that. Anyway, cut to the chase. Walk into a news agent, pay a pound for a copy of the Times. I receive the Times. That's a sort of sensible transaction. That shouldn't change too much when I go online. I would be quite surprised, slightly miffed, if the news agent asked me to pre-populate a series of forms and hand them over before I was able to engage in the transaction. That doesn't make sense. Now, yes, the data controller and processor has a responsibility there, but so do you as the customer and consumer to take a hard look at what you're engaging in and make some choice about it. Mm. I guess there's also an element of, um, you know, we've got the legislation. It, I can't see a 14-year-old on the Instagram account wading through GDPR and saying, well, this is what I must do as, as a data processor uh, or a data originator. But how do we persuade people? How do we nudge people almost to think in terms of data security and privacy? I think there's an element actually on the organisations here. So when it comes to privacy policies, I think organisations need to be absolutely transparent with going to your point, how they're using the data, um, why they're using the data, um, and being very clear to individuals when they're gaining their informed consent. I think that's one element. So individuals need to be able to consider how they how information could be used about themselves um you know could that be used against them could that information be sold um for financial gain um and could it lead to um gaining further information that might be sensitive about that individual i don't want to bang on too much about social media platforms because yeah we don't tempt turn too much into a, a hitting stick but how could social media platforms contribute to better prevention of social engineering um, and also what sort of incentive is there for institutions uh, financial institutions or other organizations to ensure that the sort of information that people share regularly on social networks or social media doesn't make its way into the sort of security questions you might be asked I think it's a really uh, interesting quest question actually and the the second point possibly leads us through to the first in terms of way of answering so incentives on social media firms, well, you know, not going to beat them up again, but there's been a lot of press, and they'll probably continue into the near future, a lot of press pointing out the ills of some of these platforms or perceived ills. The reality is, though, they do a lot of good. They've brought a lot of people very close together, and they're, for some people, absolutely essential as a way of staying in contact with others. I think for the firms to get over the current sort of hump in some of the concerns here, and certainly Facebook are publicly now talking about how they can win back trust of people, and I think we can use the T word here, it's to demonstrate, you know, the sort of quid pro quo. We think, and we invest in our, our, our data subjects on the platform, we're going to treat them in a certain grown-up way and protect them from some of the ways in which they've been previously exploited. So that incentivization for the companies is there to, to gain the trust of people. So in terms of, of the model and what more they can do, I think engaging with their user base and really understanding why they use the platforms, what their main services are, and then trying to tailor that better to their demographics. That all seems a bit, a bit woolly, I'm afraid, but I think 
no one knows better than probably Mark Zuckerberg and, and, and Facebook, to pick on one platform in particular, why their users use their platforms and what they do when they're on the platforms. That absolutely critical insight, which currently produces huge financial dividend, could be turned inwards to understand how better to protect those you know, profiles, to protect those individuals on spot when they're entering into risky potential areas in which their data might be, might be at risk of being stolen. I think going back to the part of the question over social engineering, um, I think these big social media platforms would really benefit from having some sort of warning system. So, you know, where they're getting intelligence feeds on, you know, big, you know, fraudulent um, attacks and sort of common tactics and techniques, um, perhaps having the ability to actually forewarn their end users and saying, you know, or flagging, this looks like it's potentially suspicious, you know, be cautious, or having some sort of warning banner come up, I think could be really, really beneficial. Um, so it's a slight sideline, but where you're looking at things like the spread of fake news and viral messaging, you know, how can you actually look at preventing the spread of that further when it's been confirmed as non-legitimate, you know, having a means of trying to bring that back or putting out a counter message saying this is likely to be a scam or incorrect, we've not been able to validate this. However, I caveat the fact that there is a plethora of data and it's not easy to catch every scam out there and everything that's going on. Um, so that sort of leads into another question really, which is um, we've talked about the um, individual responsibility as well. You know, you, Yes, these companies collect your data, but also you're volunteering that data to those organisations. What steps can the man or woman on the street take to make sure they're less likely to equip people who take, you know, who um, conduct social engineering attacks? They're less likely to be equipped with the right tools or the right information to, to get into your account or to, to get past your own personal defences. I think possibly to start, one, one general thing people can do is recognise that to care about your personal privacy and the way your data is used isn't particularly a geeky thing. That That is something that it's legitimate to be concerned about. What does that get you, though, once you're discerning about the way your data is used? It gives you an opportunity to choose those businesses, companies and suppliers you care to give your data to, to actively seek out people you know are going to respect your information and can demonstrate transparency up front in, in simple language, why they're going to look after your data, why they're going to use it. In doing so, you not only legitimise those companies, but slowly but surely you can create that sort of wider acceptance and standard in industry that, do you know what, the people who do the right thing, who show their privacy policies, who care about the customers, are the ones who are getting the revenue. Uh, it won't change the world overnight, but increasingly by becoming part of that customer expression that this is important to me and I choose business and suppliers on the back of the things I care about, that will have an effect. Um, there's, a, there's another sort of sideline point around that so the individual responsibility is quite an interesting one um, with online behavior now because it's not just that individual data that they need to be mindful of as well it's the wider organization that they're also a part of so it's quite difficult for organizations today to fully protect the boundary of their their organization because they have employees that rightly have, you know, the ability to go online and have social media presence, but they might unknowingly be giving out information that's a little bit too much about their organisation and what they do. Um, again, on LinkedIn, as an example, um, where actually that information could be used not only just against them, but against their organisation too. Mm -hmm. 
and it's sometimes quite mundane information as well. Isn't absolutely. It? it might be a photograph of your workmates wearing works passes or uh, absolutely you know, any kind of sort of um, little snippet of information can be used and, um, and turned against people. Interesting. Okay. Thank you both very much. Um, any final observations on um, the issue of data privacy and social engineering? I think it's important uh, to note that it's not all doom and gloom um, and to, you know, we've obviously spoken about the horror stories, but I think the very fact that um, the implementation of GDPR, for example, to protect individuals' data is a really key step. However, we must emphasise the shared responsibility of the individuals and organisations in combating um, online fraud. Fantastic. And there's that sort of, it feels almost like a bit of a sea change. People are now aware because of GDPR that their data might be valuable. Then I think, as, as Rob was saying, there's, there's more of an interest in it that's beyond the geeky. Um, Rob, any final thoughts? Yeah, well, expanding on the geeky point, you know, this is something that's been rumbling on in Europe legislation since the 1980s or 1980. In fact, you know, in 1981, we had a, uh, some work come from the European Council on this. In 1995, we had the directive, and now in, in 2018, we have GDPR. Um, whilst it seems like this is a you know a fairly recent concern, I'm actually mollified as a, somebody who cares about these things quite passionately to see the the change, the uptick in general interest and parts of industry who weren't previously engaged in the conversation suddenly coming to a realization that their future success and the products people want have to deliver something in terms of privacy. There's a bit of more of a quid pro quo between between the customer and the service. Uh, I'd, I'd share Esme's view, I certainly share the view, that it's not all doom and gloom. I think you need to go through some of this pain, though, to to create that future culture. And certainly Europe was seen as a bit, bit, bit hardcore on some of this stuff. Increasingly around the world now, people are starting to to harmonize their laws much more towards the european model and we're seeing that in the us with some rumblings around federal legislation we've seen it in japan and other territories as well uh so i don't think this is going away uh if anything those companies who invest in it now and actually really you know not just pay at lip service but actually take time to understand what their customers want and deliver things that protect their privacy those are the ones who are going to prosper and that's a good thing fantastic i think it's also sort of a I'd be interested to see whether regulation can keep up with technology. Um, and maybe that's a subject for a whole new podcast. I, I, you know, I think the spoiler here is no, no, it can't. But, uh, um, it'll be great to see how it tries. Yeah, okay. Well, let's, let's do another podcast on that, I think. Um, so, Esme, Rob, thank you both very much, Dee, for your thoughts. Um, we'll be exploring this, te- this topic in more detail through our community, the Intelligence Network. Um, and for more information about that and how you can uh, find out how to take part in it, uh, please go to baesystems.com forward slash the Intelligence Network. Many thanks for listening to the Intelligence Download. Don't forget to subscribe via iTunes, Podbean, or your favourite podcast app. Mm-hmm.